We are going to start um, beginning our focus on the book of James. And I thought to begin with, we'd start just out of the gate by watching a short video by the Bible Project that is an introduction on James. And I will do a little intro after, but there's really nothing I will say that isn't also in this video. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a good start. If you look in the letter the book, of James, or at least Yacobos, that's his name in English. If you look in the Greek, Yacobos. you will see that his name is Yakobos, which translates his Hebrew name Yaakov. And that's why most ancient and modern translations render his name as Jacob. That's what we're going to call him in this video. Now, there are many Jacobs in the New Testament. Two of them belong to Jesus's inner circle of the 12 disciples. But this letter comes from the Jacob, who was the half-brother of Jesus himself. Now, we learn this Jacob's story from the book of Acts and from Paul's letters. After Peter moved on from Jerusalem to go start new churches, Jesus's half-brother Jacob rose to prominence as a leader in the mother church in Jerusalem. It was made up mostly of Messianic or Christian Jews. This was the first Christian community ever, and we know that it fell on hard times during the 20 years that Jacob was its leader. There was a famine that led to great poverty in the region, and these Messianic Jews were being persecuted by Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. But through it all, Jacob was known as a pillar of the Jerusalem church. He was also known as a peacemaker who led with wisdom and courage until he was tragically murdered. And in this book, we have the legacy of Jacob's teaching and wisdom condensed into a short and very powerful work. The book begins like a letter. He greets all the Messianic Jews who were living outside the land of Israel. But this does not read like one of Paul's letters where he addresses specific problems in one local church. Rather, this book is a summary of Jacob's sage wisdom for any and every community of Jesus' followers. And Jacob's goal isn't to teach new theological information. Rather, he wants to get in your business and challenge how you live. Jacob's wisdom has been heavily influenced by two sources. The first is Jesus' teaching about life in the kingdom of God, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which he's constantly echoing and quoting in the book. The second key influence is the biblical wisdom book of Proverbs, especially the poems in Proverbs 1 through 9. Jacob literally grew up with Jesus and with the book of Proverbs. And so now his own teaching sounds like them. It's stamped by their language and imagery. The book consists of short, challenging wisdom speeches that are full of metaphors and easy-to-memorize one-liners. And in essence, Jacob is calling the Messianic community to become truly wise by living according to Jesus' summary of the Torah, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. The body of the book is in chapters 2 through 5, which consist of 12 short teachings that call God's people to wholehearted devotion to the way of Jesus. And altogether, they don't develop one main idea in a linear way. Each teaching kind of stands alone and concludes with a catchy one-liner. But all of these teachings are connected through key repeated words and themes. It's really cool. At the opening of the book's body, there are two teachings. First, about favoritism and love. Jacob exposes how we tend to show favor to people who can benefit us, and we neglect people who can't, usually because they're needy. Jacob says this is the opposite of love, as Jesus defined it. He goes on to show what genuine faith does and does not look like. So if someone says that they have faith in God, but neglects people who are needy or poor, this person's faith is dead, he says. 
Their actions betray what they say they believe, and genuine faith always results in obedience to Jesus' teachings. Now, scattered throughout the body of the book, we find three different places where Jacob develops Jesus' own teaching about our words. So, with the same mouth, we unleash pain upon people and then go offer praise to God. So messed up. And also, we judge people and then go talk badly about them behind their backs. And we also all tend to distort the truth to our own advantage. How we talk about people opens up a window into our hearts and our core values. Our words tell the real truth about our character. Jacob also believes that God's kingdom community, as Jesus taught about it, is the kind of place where the divisions created by wealth and social status are dismantled. So he warns first about the arrogance that wealth can create in people who believe it will be around forever. He says, no, your wealth will one day rot just like you. In contrast, God's people are to live with patience and hope for Jesus' return to set all things right. And this should inspire a life of faith-filled prayer. Now, this part of the book, all of these teachings, they're so powerful, and there's way more than we have time for in this video. But seriously, read all of them and slowly. Now, placed in front of these 12 wise teachings is the introductory chapter. It's a flowing stream of wise teachings and one-liners, and they're designed to sum up the main ideas of the entire book. This chapter actually introduces you to all the key words and themes that you're going to meet in chapters 2 through 5. Jacob opens by saying that he knows from personal experience, life is hard. He was martyred, after all, not long after writing this letter. But he believes that life's trials and hardships are actually paradoxical gifts that can produce endurance and shape our character. God can do amazing work inside of us in the midst of suffering and help us become perfect and complete. Now, that word perfect, it's really important for Jacob. He repeats it seven times in the book. In biblical Hebrew and in Greek, this word refers to wholeness. It means living a completely integrated life where your actions are always consistent with the values and beliefs that you've received from Jesus. Jacob knows that most of us actually live as fractured people with big inconsistencies in our character. We are all more compromised than we want to admit. However, God is on a mission to restore fractured people to make them whole. And it begins with wisdom, the ability to see my hardships through a new perspective. God will generously give this kind of wisdom to people who ask for it in faith without doubting God's character. And when we realize our humble and frail place before God, we are forced to choose between anxiety or trust. And true wisdom means choosing to believe that God is good despite my circumstances. So if it's poverty that's forcing you into hard times in life, Jacob says, try and view it as a gift that forces you to trust in God alone. And besides, wealth is fleeting. It's all going to pass away like wildflowers in the summer heat. And so when we do fall into hard times, don't accuse God. Rather, let your circumstances teach you what Jesus taught about God's character, that the Father is generous, that he's there to meet us in our pain, and that he's trustworthy. It's this God who, through Jesus, has given us new birth to become new kinds of humans who can face their suffering with total trust in the Father, just like Jesus did. And this new humanity is something we discover when we not only listen to God's word, but do what it says. 
Jacob calls God's word here the perfect Torah of freedom. He's referring here to the greatest command of the Torah as passed on to us through Jesus, that he freed us to love God and love our neighbor. And Jacob shows practically what that kind of love looks like. It means speaking to others in a kind and loving way. It means serving the poor. And it means living with wholehearted devotion to God alone. Now you can see how this opening chapter contains all the key words and ideas explored more deeply in the 12 teachings of chapters 2 through 5. Jacob immersed himself in the wisdom of Jesus and of the Proverbs, and he's given us a great gift in this book of his own wisdom. This is a beautifully crafted punch in the gut for those who want to follow Jesus. And that is what the book of James, or Jacob, is all about. It's online. Um, there's a lot in there. And I, I like his last line, a punch in the gut. Okay. Hmm. So what good is a truth if we don't know how to live it? And what good is an intention if we can't sustain it? Those were questions that Eugene Peterson poses in the introduction to the book of James in the message. And uh, it reminded me of the words of Jesus who told his disciples right before he left to live in the world but not of it. And this all makes me think of what James is going to teach us is that we live in a world, but we're still called to, to live according to the kingdom. Uh, tricky business, isn't it? <laughs> I'm, I was really moved by what you said, Emmanuel, about that song. Because I, I think that song, especially in our culture, is very similar to how we feel often about that song, is very similar to how we sometimes feel about our Christianity. It's pretty easy. I, I've sung that song since high school. I've sung it in peppy ways, and, uh, well, this is probably the most solemn I've ever sung it. <laughs> and um, and it, it seems like a no-brainer. I mean, every Christian could sing that song, right? I have decided to follow Jesus. It's, but hearing what those words cost, hearing when they were first sung, and the cost that happened for someone saying them is really sobering, isn't it? And um, this is the world that James lived in. He was uh, the leader of the Jerusalem church. He was writing 
actually probably to people who were part of that church, that had been part of that church. But after the martyrdom of Stephen had dispersed and out of Jerusalem. So he was writing to the church and the 12 tribes, but he was also writing to people he knew and loved. And he knew their circumstances. He knew the circumstances in Jerusalem. He knew the circumstances to uh, the people outside of Jerusalem, the Christians. They were under persecution. Just like this uh, person who wrote, or he didn't write it, he lived out those words. So sometimes when we read James, I don't know how often you read James. It's kind of an uncomfortable book, so a lot of times we don't read it very often. It feels in some ways like a rule book. There's a lot of do's and don'ts in it. Uh, We don't sit well with rules like that. They make us uncomfortable. We don't like to be blocked in and hemmed in and told what to do. We don't like to be made feel, to feel guilty when we don't live up to those rules, as is the reality of every rule. And I think we uh, read it sometimes as no-brainers, because they're not new rules. Be kind to each other. Be kind to the poor. Be... uh, Don't get taken in by the rich and famous. Uh, Speak well of each other, respect each other. There's a lot of different lessons in there that even if you're not a Christian, you've grown up with, with that encouragement. But those of us who did grow up in, in, in the church, had it kind of hammered into us from the get-go. And um, it just struck me when I heard that story, and I've been reading James myself, that those are not easy words to tell someone when you know that what it's going to cost them could very well be their death. He was not like saying, oh, you're not doing well, or, you know, you should follow God. He was, he believed so much in what he was saying that he's saying it's, it's worth losing your life over. And, um, and he, in fact, lost his life over them. It would be just a few years down the road after writing this that he would also be violently martyred. So the first thing is to get a context of of where these words come from. I don't think, though, that he was saying them to say, you're not doing well enough, you're not doing good enough. Although it does, 
He does say that. But why was he saying that? I think that's the thing today I want to look at a little more because his why should be our why. And um, I think his uh, one of the main reasons he was writing it can um, be seen right in that first chapter. And maybe you could put the first verse up. Yeah, he has to give it on. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. He was trying to lead the followers to joy. Really? I mean, yes, <laughs> really, but really living in, in that thing, that, that oppression, that fear, there's joy in the middle of that. It doesn't seem like an easy thing. <laughs> but I really think he was trying to say, don't be perfect because you don't want to fail God. I think he was saying, pursue this in order to get what you're going for, which is the joy of the Lord. To get past this moment that you're in of persecution and really dig deeper into your faith and who God is and your relationship with God go deeper than your situation in your moment. And I, I want us to think about that because, oh, thank God in this culture, few of us are going to be killed at the moment because of what we believe. But... We don't, many times we don't feel accepted, we don't feel understood, we um, are tempted to blend in and fit in. When we don't blend in and fit in, we feel uh, sidelined and uh, disrespected. I mean, we understand our own pain, I mean, then, then we all have pain with just the way the world is and people dying and our own health and our own finances and our own fears about making retirement work, <laughs> getting our kids through college, and, um, and just the way the power structure of the most powerful nation in the world gets played out and our kind of participation in it and our kind of being torn up by it. Can't have a conversation with anyone about health, the health system, and have it not just kind of conclude with things are not right, right? 
insurance. I mean, all of these things bring us into this understanding, you know, that and temptation to move into shame or doubt or lust or deception, anger, pride, um, hiding out, uh, not accepting, getting angry, road rage, whatever, neighbor rage, just uh, as we're trying to make it through our own struggles. So what James would say and what we're going to say and remind ourselves of for several weeks now coming up is that that isn't going to get us anywhere near where we want to be. And where do we want to be? We want to have joy. Who in this world doesn't want to have joy? That's not just us in the church. We're all seeking to have some kind of um, contentment, some joy, some uh, just, it's good. We, every single person, I believe, wants to wake up in the morning and say, it is good. So the fact that we don't say that or have a hard time saying that or finding that in in the ways we try to escape the bad and the things that make us wake up in the morning and say, oh, another day of this. Those, uh, Those things really don't work, do they? Because when we go to sleep at night, the next day we're waking up saying the same thing. So James is saying, actually, pursuing God deeper and and really going after this transformation, a true transformation, or maybe that's not how to say it, just going after, not the do's and don'ts, not a rule book. He's not saying this is something you have to put on. Okay, all of you who are kind of prone to gossip, I want you to shut up for a while, you know, because you'll be happier if you do. That's actually not what he's saying. He's, he's, He's making a highlight that, yes, those things, the way we use our words, our lack of blessing, our propensity towards judgment, our double-mindedness and double face do not lead us into a deeper place with Jesus. But what he's actually saying is you can't... Sometimes we take his book to, like, change your behavior. And even in the history of the church, we've gotten a little upset with those words because we say, well, our salvation isn't based on our behavior, Right? We already know we can't do anything to earn our salvation. So James, you saying change my behavior is not really leading us into that world of salvation. But he's not actually trying to lead us into a world of salvation. He's trying to help us 
learn how to live out our salvation. He's not putting into question, are we saved or not, if we do these things. He's questioning, are you happy in your salvation? Are you fulfilled? Are you whole? There is a wholeness here that we can be as God's people, right here, right now, in this world as it looks like. And the way he says it, if you could go to the next scripture, this is also in um, the first chapter. And he's saying, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. So this is how he's saying you do the things that we're about to talk about. If any of you lacks wisdom, which is his word for truth and, and fulfillment and wholeness, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. Without finding fault. Without finding fault. We shouldn't be afraid to read James' words or we shouldn't come away and just say, oh my gosh, I'm so bad. It should drive us to go deeper in God and say, I need more of God. I need more of you, Jesus. I need to go deeper because we can't really resist power without prayer and without a deeper relationship with God. We can't, we can't live in this world without judgment, without that. We can't be generous to the poor or the rich. Um, without that. And, and I think that that's a good way to approach this um, book is to say, Lord, we want to go deeper with you. Show us how. And we want to see this that James is talking about in our lives. We want to see it manifested. Okay, I'm going to uh, end there. And I do want us to, to divide up into small groups. I've left pieces of paper around the room that have these two scriptures on it. And I just want you to have some time to reflect on those, what you're thinking at this moment about those two scriptures and whatever the Spirit leads you to think about now. And um, we just have a few minutes to kind of talk before we talk together before we end. We're going to have many minutes over the course of these weeks to talk through the scripture but let's let's just begin okay
I'm going to call us back together. Um, so I invite you to consider that that was the first of an ongoing conversation we're going to have together about this book. Instead of having a whole bunch of little conversations over the coming weeks, why don't we just consider we're having one really long conversation <laughs> together. And um, I want to close us in, in prayer. Hmm. Okay, here we are, God. All of who we are. And we want something so much deeper, even than it feels like we are. And you have said, you have guided us through James to ask for what we feel we are lacking. That wisdom, that understanding, that wholeness, that ability to stand straight in a world, tall, on our feet, in a world that so often feels like it brings us to our knees. Oh, well, Lord, we want to be on our knees. <laughs> but our knees before you, not before man. So we're asking. We're asking for you to come into these teachings on James and give us new hope and new insight. We're asking that you drive us into your arms. We're asking, Lord, that you do give to us generously, that we can learn to love what you have created to the point that we can choose to speak your name out. Choose to touch our neighbor and love our neighbor. Choose to love ourselves. Choose to love you. These are the people we want to be, Lord. We want to believe that you give generously. Even as we confess that to ask sometimes is hard because we don't fully believe and we, we get caught in this trap of thinking we somehow have to make it happen ourselves. And yet, we know we never have yet been able to make it happen ourselves. So, Lord, come. In Jesus' name, amen.